you know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with, and don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. special guest today. Her name is Julie Parker. I've known her for a long time. Um, She owns Rocky Mountain Dog Training in Colorado, which is a comprehensive pet dog training business dealing with everything from puppy kindergarten to complex behavior problems. And what I have Julie here to talk about today is puppy socialization specifically, because I get a ton of questions about this. And to be honest, most of what I share with you about that is my opinion and today I want to get after some facts. So hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that we get to talk about puppies today. Me too. I know. It's my uh, my specialty. It is. It's your thing. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your work. Tell me about uh, your education. Um, let's get started. Okay, perfect. Um, so, you know, I kind of started my my training career with a, uh, an organization called IPDTA. It was actually out of Canada, and it was acquired by the Pet Professional Guild, but is now defunct. And then as far as my education goes, I continued uh, recently with Jean Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers. I graduated a, about a month ago, and uh, I really enjoyed that curriculum. And I felt like uh, one of the benefits to that was critical thinking skills, uh, which is really important when you're working with dogs, as you know. And especially with puppies, I think that there's uh, tons of crazy information out there, tons of kind of semi-truths, semi-falses, you know, and so on. And so I think, uh, you know, that that education really helped me kind of navigate those waters a little bit more specifically towards the the goals that we have. And then as far as my history goes, um, I really started with dogs like a decade ago, <laughs> um, and I was working with shelter and rescue dogs at the time. And uh, ultimately, I ended up in the training field, just really just simply put, I just wanted to get on the preventative end. Um, you, you see a lot of behavioral issues when you're working in those areas, and it's just kind of heartbreaking. And so, you know, rather than being reactionary, I just wanted to just get on the front end of behavior. 
I think that happens to so many people that are in shelters um, and shelter work. You just feel like you're trying to, you know, stop a flood with a bucket <laughs> and you want to get to the source of that flood. Yeah, it's like a hemorrhage trying to treat it with a Band-Aid, I think. <laughs> so. it, it is. And it's, it can be it can be really depressing. And I know that um, rescue is something you're still really passionate about. So that's fantastic. Um, why puppy socialization? Why is that so important to you? I think as far as bang for your buck, it's probably the area where we can get the most done as far as preventative goes. It's not to say that you can change all things with the dog. A lot of it factors genetically. Um, but I think, you know, for the, the average dog, you can do a lot of good there. And, you know, we don't require the people that attend our socialization, take our training classes. It's all just about socialization in those. And it's it's because I think even without training, even though training is important, even without it, uh, you can do a lot to get those dogs to stay in their homes because ultimately behavioral problems are what tend to lose dogs their homes. And so, uh, you know, that that's kind of how that, that started. And then it just grew into this huge... Um, I guess this huge program, we have uh, four that we're offering right now a week, uh, and it's just been hugely popular. We have wait lists for all of them, and I think we do it really well. So, You must be doing it well <laughs> if you've got that many and you've got wait lists. So I'm going to skip. I know I always give my people a list of questions, but I'm going to skip down and say, because I think this flows really nicely, talk about your puppy program a little bit. So you said you have four puppy social groups, am yeah. I right, a week and those are wait lists, but then you also do have puppy training classes that are separate, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that different trainers have different ways of going about that. For us, um, we separated them out just because, you know, it's just so important for us for those dogs to get that foundation. Um, and we do do some socializing in, in training classes, depending on the dynamic, but most of it is done in our socialization groups. And, the socialization groups that we do, they're actually kind of three mini socials. So uh, we start with fresh dogs, uh, dogs that are very young or dogs that are shy, don't have a lot of experience yet. They, they start in a very small group. And with those guys, some of them even start behind barriers just so that they can get comfortable. One of the things that we really focus on is making sure that we never scare a dog in those socials. And so we let them ease into it at their pace. And we really let the dog set the pace on that. And then from there, we've got a second group in that um, prime group, which is more like the, you know, slightly socialized dogs, but they're still kind of navigating those social waters. And then the last group within those socials is kind of like our Tarzans group, you know, like the dogs that really like to play a lot <laughs> and have a lot of uh, experience with other dogs. They're getting really good at navigating those social interactions and so on. And so uh, we, we kind of build up their skill set while we're doing it. And then it's not just socialization with other dogs. Like we do, um, especially with the scarities, we do a lot of uh, confidence building around people. We'll also have equipment set up that is really just intended to get them comfortable on like varied surfaces. We've got some sound type stuff that we'll do as well. And uh, the goal again with that is just getting them um, exposure in a way that's comfortable for them to uh, things that they're going to experience in the real world. That sounds so fantastic. So you mentioned that you may or may not do socialization in your group training classes for puppies. When you say that you're referring specifically to the puppies playing with other dogs, right? Because socialization is kind of happening all the time in your, you know, group sessions, right? Yeah, correct. And I guess I should uh, kind of categorize that. So I think what most people think of as socialization is dogs and people, which we know is not the full gamut of socialization. Right. But as far as like the 
you know, as far as the target audience goes, we don't do the socialization with other dogs in that setting. And is that because you find, I guess, tell me why, tell me why that is. Tell me why you split them up. Cause I think it's a great idea. It's a good thought. Really, it just comes from trying to reach a broader audience with our socialization groups. And then also we do run a pretty quick curriculum. And so it can be a lot to get through just as is. And so doing socialization on top of that in the group setting can be a little bit too long for puppies. They get a little overly tired and, you know, it's, it's not a great idea to have them socializing when they're overly tired. <laughs> so. Right. Or learning, right. Or, or doing, or doing the training part. Cause I, um, I used to always run into that. The puppies would either be, you know, too excited for playtime to learn or too tired from playtime to learn or, you know, too tired from whatever to play. Um, I think it's a great idea to split them up. I think another thing that we encounter a lot with our clients is that they really do want their dogs to be very social. But one of the aspects of socialization is also making sure that they understand that not all dogs and not all people are accessible to them. And so I think it's a good idea to actually have those split out. So sometimes they do get to, you know, do free play uh, in the socialization group. Actually, both of the socialization group is a lot of free play. But in the training class, it's a really good idea, I think, to get them to understand that that's not always an option. And so focusing on the handler in that setting versus the socialization where they're um, focusing kind of mixed between the handler and the dogs um, really helps to parse that out for them. Awesome. So I think that there's a lot of myths and um, untruths floating around, especially on social media right now. I know that there's a couple of popular blogs that have kind of, you know, catchy anti-socialization titles that are getting a lot of attention right now. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on and chat, because I know that in my world, which is the sport dog world, socialization almost has a bad name. Um, and so what are the myths that you would like to dispel? What would you like to say to everybody who kind of thinks that puppy kindergarten might be the devil? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I think that there, there's no one right way to socialize a dog. You could do it on your own. Um, you can do it in a group setting. And there's also, you know, benefits and drawbacks to the group setting. Like if they are only coming to our facility, they're not getting exposed to a whole lot of other environments, right. you know? And so, so, but I think that the myth actually comes from the fact that there are a lot of really poorly run socials. And so, you know, I understand where that's coming from, but I think you're kind of throwing the, the baby out with the bath water when you say that you can actually make it so that people are quarantining their dogs through that period and that's really dangerous as well so I think finding a middle ground between what they're reading and also what we know um, just like from the science community about socialization is really important and unfortunately for pet dog uh, owners that's really hard to find that information so so I think um, almost I mean I would say yeah, yeah. So, you know, my I actually have I'm working on an initiative right now that's probably going to come out next summer uh, towards that. But I think you know the the thing about it is is that you can do damage on both ends. So, you know, going for the free for all type socials really can be damaging to a dog that's just not inclined to be social with other dogs or other people. You kind of have to play bouncer for them, you know? And so if you're in a free for all setting, that becomes really difficult. And then also on the flip side of that, if you're only getting your dog exposure to the inside of your house and your sibling dogs and the people in the household, that doesn't really account for what they're going to experience in the real world. 
So I think that's a biggie there. And, and, and really, ultimately, what I, I think I would say, you know, I think the biggest message is you do need to get them out and you do need to get them socializing, um, you know, other dogs, other people, sounds, surfaces, uh, environments, all that stuff. But it doesn't need to be uh, overwhelming for the dog. And you don't need to go about it in a way where you're putting them into really high, high stress situations, which I, I think as far as puppies goes, that could be something along the lines of like a dog park that could be really overwhelming for a very young puppy. Or even I think in your field, um, like going to agility matches might be overwhelming for them. <laughs> Literally what I was going to, I was thinking or an agility trial. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For a little tiny baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you can really kind of help them along without going, you know, pardon my term, but balls to the wall with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that's a biggie there. I think, you know, just you have to get them out, but you really do have to do it carefully. And it's also really important to not be such a helicopter parent that the dogs are not actually getting the exposure that they need. They have to get the exposure. So for instance, you can't just be shoving treats in their face the entire time that a dog is walking past. They need to actually see the dog before they see those treats. You know what I mean? Yeah. Along those lines, um, something that I see a lot is people are terrified of something bad happening. They're terrified of their dog, their puppy having a bad experience and then having like a lifelong phobia. Um, what is, do you know what the science says about that? Like how likely actually is that? And let's say something does, you know, let's say you are walking your 11 week old puppy and a big dog barks and lunges and really scares her. Um, you know, what's your plan then? Is it important what you do in the moment? I think that, you know, usually what I tell people it's in the moment, you're just doing damage control. Yeah. <laughs> and then afterwards you need to kind of deal with it. But you know, how scared, I think people are just terrified to get their puppies out because they're scared that they'll develop some fear. And what they should be afraid of is actually their puppy just being afraid of novelty because they weren't out. Can you speak to that a little bit? You know, let me first speak to the novelty piece of it. Um, you know, I think as far as the novelty goes, you you absolutely have to get them out. It's kind of on par. This sounds like such an extreme example, but it's really legitimate. Um, we've read stories about even human children that have been raised in like a very small room and they can't speak language. You know, yeah. they don't have the ability to communicate um, on par with other humans. And that's actually very similar to what can happen to puppies that are like raised in a barren landscape. So novelty is important. You can't just keep them in their little bubble during that period. Um, but that said, it is true that they are probably at some point going to encounter something scary. And so how you deal with it, uh, I agree with you. I think in the moment, you've just got to get the dog more comfortable, period. So that oftentimes means moving further away from whatever it is that spooked the dog. Um, but as far as the, you know, socialization aspect goes, I think it is important to kind of get them back on the saddle when they're feeling more comfortable. Um, and, and how I look at socialization is a kind of a numbers game. It's not that you have to do like the you know, the old uh, hundred dogs, hundred people. I think that's a good message to have out there, but really what it means is you've got to get your dog uh, experience in numbers so that really one of those experiences isn't going to be damaging. And I think of it in terms of, you know, 
if your dog has only had one experience and then the next one is scary, it's highly likely that your dog is going to form an opinion that things are, you know, this thing, whatever it was that scared them is going to be scary going forward. Whereas if your dog's had a lot of positive experiences, but then they have one negative experience, they've got all these positive experiences to draw conclusions from. So it's less likely to be damaging for them. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I like the thought of, you know, we just want to outweigh that one bad thing. So it's really, it all comes down to reinforcement history, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if if their reinforcement history says, you know, sitting when you are greeting a person pays off, you know, nine times out of 10, then that one 10th person that lets the puppy jump all over them and lick their face doesn't have as big of an impact. Bingo. (laughs) You know, as you know, I say that as if my dogs don't do that to every single person. Um, (laughs) It's all about priorities. Um, But (laughs) it's, it's about just making sure that the reinforcement history for what we want outweighs the, the history for what we don't want. You know, the best way to think about socialization, I can't remember exactly who said this or where I read it, but it was about making the world normal for your dog. And I think that that really hit the nail on the head. Um, They, dogs, you know, they haven't been domesticated that long. And so for them, what they did prior to domestication was they really had this kind of area that they were in that they had to get very comfortable with. And that allowed them to understand that something new coming into their environment was scary. But dogs today... They have a much more diverse environment. And so we have the responsibility as their handlers to be able to show them, hey, this is normal in your environment and help them get over the hump with that stuff. So I don't know. I think that that's a really good way to put it. Uh, Think about what your goals are going to be for your dog long term uh, and and then really kind of shape their um, environments that way so that when they do get into adulthood, they're comfortable in those spaces. For the sport people out there, think about all spaces and not just your performance competition types of spaces, you know, because it's just not fair um, to prioritize sport training above training that actually just makes your dog's life easier. I was just, I just finished up a seminar um, that I got to attend as a student at the ranch with Ken Ramirez. And he, his basic philosophy of training is that your primary goal with training should always be stuff that makes the animal's life easier and everything else should always be secondary, whether it's a narcotics detection program or, you know, an animal putting on shows for the public in the zoo or whatever. The primary goal has to be, you know, what does this animal need to know to live in our world? And that should always be the first thing that we teach them. And I think this qualifies. I think, exposing our puppy to novelty to other dogs to people counts as that I think too often sport people focus on their sport as their primary training goal and then they leave this stuff out yeah I agree with that and I think um I mentioned recently that I had watched Denise Fenzi's seminar on or webinar I guess it was on uh puppy socialization and her take on it and one of the things that she had mentioned that I thought was just brilliant was uh, doing things in buckets. So, you know, different environments, um, you know, all go kind of go into that bucket. And eventually the dogs do learn that, hey, new environments are a good thing. It's not that they have to go to the exact environment that they're going to be exposed to in the future, right. you know, which means 
things, you know, you can avoid that really stressful agility ring early on. Um, you just need to get them into those novel environments. Eventually, all novel environments are comfortable for them. I think that idea of teaching them to generalize that concept by exposing them to enough new places, as opposed to just going to puppy class and then maybe also going to your friend's house to let them play with the other dogs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. maybe agility trials that, that are probably at the same place. Go to as many different places you can think of that aren't going to be too scary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, too, the, the thing that Kim Romero says really does help with that. Um, You know, I think... Like for us, we're we're primarily pet dog trainers. And so one of the things that we see is a high priority from our clients to get the dogs trained. But I think the message that I think the general public misses with that and that we can really help them with is that without socialization, those skills that they're learning can sometimes be non-functional. The dog has bigger fish to fry if they're scared, you know? So so I think he's exactly right. I think you've got to get the dog comfortable first before training. Yeah, something I really what I'm really liking lately is thinking of it as teaching them to be optimistic. So teaching them to look at a new situation and have their first thought be, this is going to be good for me. This is going to be great yes. for me. Um, as opposed to being pessimistic and looking at a new situation and saying, I, this is going to be awful just like every other time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with that. I think that's a great way to think of it as well. And I don't know. As soon as you said that, I thought of, you know, the anticipatory response you see a lot with classical conditioning. That's immediately what came into my head. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what we want to see. Exactly. Um, I want my dog to show up to a new spot, um, a new training class, a new, you know, what if we have to go see a veterinary specialist and they've never been in this building before? Or I'm thinking of we have a dog that flew on an airplane for the first time when he was five, maybe mm -hmm. six years old. So you know, well past what we think of as a socialization period, but because he has learned to associate new environments, especially with his handler around as predicting good things for him, he was okay. And he really took it all in stride, even though that yeah. could be a really yeah. big, scary thing for a dog. It's a big, scary thing for most of us. Not just for dogs. <laughs> Not just for dogs. So... Julie, you've got this big puppy program. Do a lot of the dogs in your program continue on into adulthood? And if they do, what does that look like? Because we both know that the socialization, there's kind of a myth of this window that like slams shut yeah. at 12 weeks. Um, and there's a reason, I'm, you know, myth isn't really the right word. There's a reason for that thought, but it doesn't really stop happening. So do they continue into the program and what does that continue to look like? Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of like maintenance for, you know, just like for us, there is definitely a, it, it becomes more difficult as the dogs get older, but it doesn't mean that they're doomed. <laughs> you know, so, right. so it is important for them to continue to get those social skills and to continue to maintain those social skills. Um, but it, you know, as far as like, what most people think of as socialization, we also need to factor in that around two years of age, dogs get um, more comfortable with the dogs that they're already familiar with and less comfortable with dogs that are new to them. So that's something that I also want to mention is normal for dogs. It's kind of like us. Like when we were young, we used to like to go to a party with God knows who, you know? <laughs> um, but now we've got our select group of friends that we tend to prefer. And I think that dogs do that as well. But as far as the, the 12 week window, you know, 
there's no real agreement, actually. I think some people will say 12 weeks. Some people will say up to 16 weeks as far as when it starts to get more difficult. But what we do know is that we can get the most bang for our buck early. And so the earlier, the better with that. But you do need to continue that stuff forward. And so with our programs, we do see a lot of dogs into, uh, I would say like late adolescence, early adulthood. Uh, and then from there, when uh, when we're seeing dogs in adulthood, it's usually for a one-off, like, you know, maybe the dog is chewing the sprinkler or they've had a behavioral issue crop up that uh, we hadn't been seeing when the dog was younger. That's really excellent. Um, if you could tell the puppy owning public one thing, what would it be? Ooh, I think... Uh, do no harm would <laughs> be my, my number one. And if I could categorize that just a little bit, that means not raising them in a barren landscape and also not bombarding them. Um, so you don't want to flood the dogs in situations. Excellent. So it's kind of a first do no harm approach, which involves avoiding that barren landscape, but also um, avoids flooding, mm-hmm. which let's just talk about flooding for one second, because you mentioned it. Our, you know, the scientific definition of flooding is essentially that you have a stimulus that produces, um, you know, fearful response and you essentially overwhelm the learner or the subject with it until they kind of stop panicking. So it's actually very common, more common than I think it should be for sure in what is being called puppy, you know, quote unquote socialization. Lots of examples of that that I can think of, but do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, so I think that I, I think the reason that it's been so difficult to stop that is that sometimes it does work. Totally, that's why. <laughs> that's why it exists. These things don't exist if they don't work. Yeah, exactly. But I think that what we need to look at is that we as trainers are in the probabilities game. And so there's also a really high probability that we can do damage when we do that and scare the dog and and continue to perpetuate that fear. And so if you're weighing your odds, you can actually tip the odds more in your favor by not doing flooding. So... That's kind of my approach with it. I I think it's painful just as a trainer to watch dogs that are in the midst of fear and expected to get over it. I have a I I don't have a problem with the dog park for um you know pet dogs. I think as long as you know body language and you're aware of what's going on and are willing to leave, I think it's a good option for some people. Um, but that said, I my myself have a very hard time going because I think it's also a place where a lot of dogs get flooded and they don't have a choice in it and they can't leave. Completely. And it's why you have split your puppy socials into kind of the shy group and the Tarzan group, because when you've got that shy puppy in the Tarzan group, you're flooding the shy puppy. Absolutely. Yeah. And even I'll be perfectly honest, even for some dogs, when we get them into a barrier and we just have them watching, there are times where we have to put up a double barrier and create a no man's land behind them or or between them, because even that can be Uh too much for a dog. So we really try hard to not flood dogs. It's just so much easier for them and so much faster in the long run to keep them comfortable. Well, it's excellent that you've put so much thought into this. And thank you so much for talking to me about it. Where can people find you, um, especially if they're interested in working with you in person um, or where can they find you? I, I don't think you're offering anything, any online learning opportunities as of yet, but you have your big program in person so talk to them a little bit about where that is and where they can find you. Yeah. So uh, our website is RockyMountainDogTraining.com. We're located in Broomfield, which is um, we're right on the edge of Westminster and Broomfield in uh, Colorado. And we service the surrounding area. So on up to Boulder and Thornton, um, North Glen and so on. 
So um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us, but definitely keep tabs. Um, also on our Facebook page, we'll be launching some exciting programs uh, early next year. Awesome, Julie. Well, thank you so, so much for this. I think it was very informative and everyone will enjoy it. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to CogDog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the CogDog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training.